Lord, I thank you for these men and a chance just to be together and uh, learn and spur each other on to love and good deeds and to pay attention to things that are true, things that will make us wise and things that will lead to salvation. What a good deal that is. So God, who gives grace and glory and withholds no good thing from those who love him, I pray this morning you'd help a bunch of stubborn men who have not paid attention to this book. Uh, I pray you'd just change us. I pray for uh, a bunch of guys that are intimidated right now. We as men, Lord, you know, do not like to get involved in stuff that we are not competent at. And uh, and so uh, there's a lot of really courageous guys who are going to step up and say, look, I don't care how old I am. I need to learn so I can get with it. Help us to learn. Help us to encourage each other and um, to see each other through to a better end. I pray that in your name this morning. Amen. Guys, what I like about this uh, material, and we, we've, we've done something different than we've done in a long time, is we pulled out this book because we felt like it was a good time to sync up with what I'm doing this fall and to have every single person in our body, every single person that runs with us and tracks with us, get uh, get their legs underneath them, rebuild that foundation, and know some basic things that are true. So what I want to do this morning is uh, just encourage you. I want to help you with this stuff. I want to let you know. You will only get out of this what you put into it. Bible study is not something that you observe. It's something you jump in and do. I can remember I was in uh, college, and I was flirting with a couple of different things that I was going to do. I was, um, I was interested in being able to really help people, and law was one thing because I thought that would help me. Uh, but I, I also was interested in medicine because I really saw folks who were in crisis physically that would go. And so I had a relationship with some folks at a hospital that said, hey, I want to I just get exposed a little bit more to some of this world. And so they, they did a number of things with me, but one of which was they took me in and said, we want you to do an autopsy with us. Now, I, I had seen just enough Marcus Welby as a kid that I thought what you did is you kind of sat in that upper room, or for those of you of a different generation, Seinfeld, when Kramer's up there, you know, eating junior mints, right? Looking down over that operating table or down over the autopsy. And so I, I, I anyway, was there and I walk in and, uh, and the cadaver is on the, the table and they were looking at it. This guy had died of pneumonia and blocked arteries, but he also had dementia or Alzheimer's. It was the early days of Alzheimer's research. And so I got in there right when that little bone saw, they had just cut basically the back of his scalp up like this and then pulled the scalp up over his face, and the bone saw was, was removing his cranium. And I go, whoa, 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 I walked in, where are the stairs? And they looked at me, they go, what? I go, how am I going to watch this autopsy? They go, you don't watch an autopsy, you do an autopsy. If you want to learn about the human body, come on. Slap your gloves on over there. And I walked up and, uh, and saw them remove the cranial skull cavity, and, uh, and then take that brain out of there, measure it, put a balloon in there to see what the size of the of, of the actual cavity was compared to the mass and the volume of the brain. They were trying to see at the time if if uh, certain pressures in the brain in certain areas were causing some of this. They were doing different things. But it wasn't long from that where we then began to uh, just go in. And I can remember cutting that guy's chest open, you know, not me, but with those other guys and then my doing my part. And, and literally he goes, I want to show you something. And I can remember at a young age, him grabbing that heart and saying, put your hand here, follow, trace this vessel, trace this artery. He goes, and it just got down like that old, uh, uncooked macaroni right there coming out of that guy's heart. It was hard. I could feel it. And he goes, that, my friend, is a clotted artery. That is what leads to death. 
And that's what will happen if you don't eat right and take care of your body. And then we went on, and, and I can remember there was an orderly, um, some big old boy from uh, inner city St. Louis that was down there, you know, doing some of the heavy lifting. And as I was told to do this, I just was amazed for the first time to, say the in, the way, to, to see the way the inside of the human body was put together. And I thought about it as a kid. I used to climb trees, and my buddies, one of the things we used to do was to see who could go out in the furthest branch and grab and drop, you know, and land. And we would do this up to not, not so smart heights, which is things that kids do. And I can remember thinking, how in the world did everything in me not end, you know, end up down there at my toes? The way God put this body together, that it would stick in one place the way that it did. And I can remember, I was moving some stuff around. That orderly goes, easy now, boy. He said, you touch that thing one more time. He said, we'll all be running. And I was messing with the intestine. And I could see that intestine was dark in color. And, uh, and, and I could start to smell why he was saying that. And a little bit later when that intestine was broke, I understood why he said that. Now I say all that because I learned a ton about that human body in that day. Much more than I ever would have had I just been sitting there watching somebody else, you know, from up top looking down or reading in a book in some anatomy class. I did an autopsy. And I learned more about that human body in that hour, hour and a half than I probably have ever learned since then. Where organs are, how they fit together, um, you know, how they work, how the Lord's positioned them in the body. And it amazed me. I want to tell you something. This is not an observation sport. You've got to dive in. If you want to learn, guys, we've given you more homework than we have in the past. Do it. It is outstanding. This book will really, really help you. Now let me just show you a couple things to help everybody show you how this book is put together. So turn to the table of contents. Because I want to just say, you know, a little bit later you're going to be bouncing around the different books. And you're going to want to know um, how to get to these things. You know, guys, if this is the first time you've been in a study like this, awesome. We're glad you're here. Become familiar with the table of contents. So when your leader says, hey, let's turn to Proverbs, you can look right there where it is and go. And, and listen, I hope all of us would go, look, I, I don't know if that's Old or New Testament. First, Second Timothy, where's that? Some of those books in the Bible get kind of thin toward the back. And so, become familiar with the table of contents. I'm going to tell you something about the Bible. The Bible, 66 books. That's how many are right there in front of you. And I'm talking about your Bible, now, not the table of contents in the book that I gave you to fill out. <laughs> Lost some of you already, my bad. The table of contents of your Bible. Okay. There's 66 books there. You guys ought to know them. You ought to know where they are. You ought to know why they're put together. And I'm going to give you a quick run through this morning just to help you. Because uh, this book is not a random collection of wisdom writings. It is a story, not always chronological, but the whole thing is tied together. One of the evidences that we have that the Bible is God's Word is this book was written over the course of about 3,000 years uh, in, in, in ten different um, civilizations, three different languages, by 40 different authors. And yet there's one main story, one big idea, one, one problem, one solution. And, and all this goes perfectly together. Okay, and so there's 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. Not that that really matters uh, too much, but you, you need to know uh, one of the ways that, to remember that is if you write out Old and Testament, O-L-D is three, Testament, T-E-S-T, four, A, one, M-E-N-T, four more, so 39 letters, okay, uh, three and nine, 
letters in Old Testament. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Easy way to remember that. Teach to your kids. Now, likewise, in the New Testament, you go, okay, how many books are there? Well, spell it out. You got New, one, two, three, and Testament, again, nine. So how many books in the Old Testament? Well, you guys are smart enough to know that 39 plus 39 doesn't equal 66. So what's a way to remember how many books in the New Testament? The answer is easy. The New Testament is about what we're doing this morning. It is about discipleship. It's about taking these things which you've heard in the presence of many witnesses and these entrusting to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, which is called discipleship, which happens through multiplication when one guy pours himself in two guys and those two guys then go get two more guys and those two guys go get two more guys and before you know it, if we did what God asked us to do, The entire population of the world will have spent time with other individuals who could teach them what God's Word says. I'm talking about all 8 billion people in 32 years. If we just do what God says we should do, we would multiply ourselves out. And in 32 years, all 8 billion people on the face of the earth would have somebody sit with them for a year and teach them the Bible. That means that we could accomplish the Great Commission today with billions of more people on the earth than when Christ gave this Great Commission in 32 years from right now if somebody just starts doing what God said we should do. The amazing thing is that some of us grew up in and around churches and nobody still has ever done that for us. Well, we're going to give you 10 weeks of it starting right now. So the New Testament is about multiplication. What's three times nine? 27. That's how many books are in your New Testament. All right. 39. Now let me show you something else that will really help you guys as you start to look at this book. Okay? As you participate with God in the good work that He began in you. Let me just tell you something. It is God who is at will and work in you to bring about His good pleasure. We are not um, ultimately get any credit for our spiritual growth. You know, when I look at other guys that are just not getting it, just not picking it up, just not clicking, just not moving forward... I've had people ask me before, does it never frustrate you? I go, no, it overwhelms me that God would, would, would give me the grace to be an individual that would want to know and would be able to know his book and apply myself to it. Now, what I want you guys to know is, is that while God produces the fruit in our lives, we, we, God causes the growth is what I want to say. We do have to cooperate or we do have to, if you will, um, we, we do have to participate with him. We can complicate his growth process. And guys, this is what's going on with a lot of us. We have been inattentive to his word, and so he keeps bringing these little cycles of pain, maybe failed marriages, maybe uh, marriages of indifference, maybe kids that go wayward, maybe careers that don't satisfy. And what God's doing, if you're, if you're, if you're one of his, is he's, he's producing in you an aching and a longing for something more. Okay, so God's always the one that causes the growth, but look at we've got to cooperate with him to grow the way that our Father wants us to grow, and we can complicate the growth process. We, we, can, um, we can go our own way, and, and God will use trials and severe pain and aching and longing and brokenness to make us a little bit more hungry for that which is true, because he loves us. He's a loving Father, and he won't pull back on discipline in order to spur us on to where we want to go. Some of you guys... I've really been wounded. And you're like, man, if there is a God and he is good and his word is true, A, I want to know why I was around churches my whole life that nobody ever taught me this stuff. And B, I want to get caught up. I want to get going. And so we're inviting you to do that, to, to not complicate your life any longer, but to cooperate with God and to stay humble. Some of you guys, by the grace of God, God captured your heart and then his grace gave you an appetite for his word, and you have walked 
in integrity. You have meditated on this. You've been like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, that does not worry when the heat comes, that knows how to handle crisis in your family, that knows how to train up children in the way of righteousness, that knows how to work through conflict, knows how to treat a woman. And you don't look at any other guy in this room with arrogance. You look at them and say, man, come and see. God is good. Let me teach you what others, by God's grace, have taught me. Let me help you be the man. And I'm going to say this to you. We are not here to increase our information. The purpose of Bible study is not information. It is transformation. We are looking to be transformed. Not kick Park City's Baptist butt in Bible trivia. All right? But to join with godly men at other places, hopefully that are making disciples and making disciples here. Not to be able to tell me books in the Old Testament and the New. You need to know that because it's a book you use effectively. But the goal, gang, of studying God's Word is transformation. It is conformity into the image of Christ. I'll tell you what, find some place to write this down. What if I told you, guys, this is what you all long for. I'm going I'm I'm to block out your Old Testament for you in a second, so keep your hand on your table of contents. But write in your book somewhere. In fact, turn to page 11. In your uh, book that we gave you. In page 11, on the right-hand side, there's a little column. Okay? Uh, that second paragraph talks about spiritual formation as the process of allowing God to conform us in the image of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to write down on that little right side. Write down the word competent. Write down the word Kind. Write down the word confident. Competent, kind, confident. Write down the word uncompromising. Write down the word courageous. And write down the word unconditionally loving king. Can I tell you guys what we're about to do together? We are about to help you become the kind of guy when somebody says, tell me about your daddy. They don't say, oh, he was busy. When somebody asks your mom, uh, your wife, excuse me, tell me about your husband, say, I can't wait to tell you about my husband. Let me tell you, I am married to the most competent man, the kindest guy. I am married to somebody who is confident and yet humble he is uncompromising he is courageous he is an unconditionally loving king and i am his queen that's what you're about to jump into because if you study this book you ask god's spirit to change your heart he will conform you into the image of his son we are producing men of character men that young boy grows grow up and say that is my daddy the one that others look at and go that is a man and I want to tell you, boys, it ain't going to happen if you sleep late and work on this on Wednesdays. But some of you guys are fixing to jump in and become men. And you will be competent, and you will be courageous just like Jesus, and you will be confident, and you will be uncompromising, and you will learn to be kind. You will bind it around your neck. you still make mistakes and screw up like me. But the direction of your life is going to be towards Christ-likeness. That's the goal. I don't want you to be polite, and I don't want you to be smart. I want you to be kings.
men of glory like Jesus. That's what we're doing. But you're going to have to dive in. This book and your ability to handle it and know it and wet it to your heart, gang, is the key to life. We are not bibliolaters. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, you can get to know me here. It's my love letter to you. Stick to it. Meditate on it. Memorize. All right? Now, look, I told you I'd do this, so I want to finish. Uh, two more things, and then we're done. In the table of contents of your Bible, you can look. And here, I want to break out your Old Testament for it, because that's the really tricky book. All right? And I say that because you kind of go, how's all this put together? If you go down there underneath Esther and draw a line, draw a line, a pencil line or a pen line, it doesn't matter. I got news for you. Bibles were written, uh, the ones we've got today, to be marked up. And so write in your Bible and, uh, and, and mark it up and circle things and underline things. But under Esther, write, just draw a little line. And I want to show this to you. All that is, is the first 17 books there. It's broke up real easy. It's 39 books in the Old Testament, the first 17 or something, the second five or something, and the last 17 or something. So the first 17 are all historical books. That's all they are. They're books that, that, that tell the story, not of God. God was around a long time before that. But it's, it's the story of God's interaction with humankind. And it's pretty chronological. Esther actually happens a little bit before, uh, you know, the time of, of Nehemiah in there. But bottom line, everything else is pretty much in order. Right down, and I, I've done this before, a long time ago. Hank Hanegraaff, some of you guys know the Bible Answer Man. Even before I knew, uh, who, before Hank was the Bible Answer Man on, on the radio, uh, he and I were together someplace in like 1983. And, uh, and he was then a, uh, one of those guys that was like a memory guy that used a little trick to teach people certain memory, uh, techniques. And, uh, that's why he's learned so much scripture and, and, and been such a great teacher. Cause he's broke it down and given folks a way to remember it. I'll never forget, we were sitting together and he was just talking about how guys could, uh, memorize even the Bible, you know? And, and, and so he said as an example, he goes, let's start where it says first and second Samuel. He goes, what I want you to imagine is that there's, Two mules sitting there, and they're both named Sam. There's the first Sam mule and the second Sam mule. And riding on those mules, there were two kings. One king and second king. So what you've got is two mules named Sam. And they're being ridden by one king and another king. And they're actually holding newspapers in their hand, which is kind of odd. And what's another word for a newspaper? A chronicle. So there's two Sam mules, two kings, holding two chronicles. And what does a, a good newspaper salesman yell when he's, uh, when he's got himself a good hot story in that chronicle? That's right. Ezra, Ezra, read all about it. All right? And then the headline says, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall in record time. And then if you flip through a little bit later to the personal section, you find out that Esther was just named queen. Now, the reason I do that, okay, and if you want to, you can go to the employment section and get yourself a job. But anyway, you can go all the way through. All right. But, but my, my, my point is, as you go through, a little simple way to remember stuff like that. And I want you guys to do whatever you've got to do to learn how the Bible's put together. The first 17 books are historical. The next five books from Job, okay, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those five are called poetical books. Some of those poetical books were written way back there in Exodus. Some of them were written in Second Kings, and you just got to know when they are because when you read poetry, you've got to figure out what's the poet talking about. That's what gives you the full opportunity to draw meaning out of those poems. 
So, so you had historical books and you had five poetical books that are really are all throughout that history. And then you've got 17 prophetical books. And there's three kinds of prophets. There's guys that wrote before a major event in the nation of Israel's history where they got sent off uh, to be a captive state in Babylon. So those are called pre-exilic prophets. There are guys that wrote during the 70 years they were in captivity. Those are called exilic prophets. And there are guys that wrote when they came out of exile. They're called post-exilic prophets. And so all 17 of those, you've got to figure out for that message to make sense so that you can find out the, the cultural context, pull out the timeless truth, and impress it upon your context. That's the kind of stuff you'll learn. It's not that hard. Any good study Bible has all those answers for you. But that's how your Old Testament is put together. The history of the Old Testament stops at Esther. And everything else gets color. Okay? But I want to tell you guys, you can know those kind of details, and if you aren't a student of this book, it will do you no good. And so if you want to be competent, if you want to be kind, if you want to be confident, if you want to be courageous, if you want to be uncompromising, if you want to be an unconditionally loving king, you must eat this book. And you must watch a little less sports center and get a little less sleep and give yourself to it. You are well on your way. Finish. Run like men. And be like the king. Amen? All right. That's it. God bless you. See you.